Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Evie Strauss, and thank you for listening. Amanda Terrell is a psychologist in Southeast Florida, and I came across some of her work in which she talked about the association of poverty and mental illness. I thought this would be a very important topic to bring to our project, and she graciously agreed to join us. Dr. Terrell, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Dr. Strauss. It's a pleasure. I am pretty passionate about this topic. I've been in mental health for about over 10 years, and right now I work for Palm Beach County Youth Services Department which is an organization that provides free family counseling, parenting classes, and short-term residential services. So I have been at the forefront of mental health and poverty for most of my career. I know there are many layers to this question, but is there a relationship between poverty and psychological illnesses? Not necessarily causal, but there is a relationship, sort of a bi-directional relationship, unfortunately. Poverty increases the risk of mental health disorders, and having a mental health disorder increases the likelihood of descending into poverty. There's a lot of socio-political issues at play, but unfortunately, um, that's the cycle we're in in this country and a lot of other countries. There's been a lot of research trying to figure out that relationship and the chicken or the egg, what comes first, how can we kind of intervene? But yes, there's a definite relationship. There's all kinds of external factors like stressful living conditions, obviously financial demands, nutrition, health, and some other things I'm sure we'll get into as we go on. How big a problem is it? Well, I actually think a lot of people who aren't in the social services field probably aren't aware. In Florida, we have about 25% of children experiencing food insecurity, meaning they are not sure where their meals are coming from or if they're going to have enough money to afford adequate nutrition. It's a big problem in Florida, and it's a big problem nationwide. It sounds almost incredulous that in this country that there are children who are hungry. We hear about it every now and then. It's a topic that pops up politically or in the media. Then it seems to disappear. 25% is an enormous number. What do you do about it? Right. Research is just starting to come out about this. We've kind of averted our eyes from this in psychology and in the mental health field. And we've known that it's been a factor, but we haven't really further examined it, how and why. And some of that research is coming out now, which is really interesting. But yes, if it were just a money problem, it probably would have been fixed a long time ago. But it's decision-making and neurological factors and, you know, all kinds of external factors that are kind of complex. Define poverty. There's poor folks. There are extreme poverty. A lot of people who have an income will still live almost a poor lifestyle because of the cost of living. When the word poverty is used, what comes to your mind? To me, poverty is an extreme lack of funds. That falls kind of on a spectrum. So there are people that are receiving public assistance that will get maybe something like $1,300 a month to live off of. You could go by the federal poverty guidelines, which is for a household of four, 36000 There's people that just have extreme financial stress and are kind of worried about their bills. So, yeah, it, it, it is a wide spectrum when you use the word poverty. Does your program try to aggressively, I guess as much as one can be, get people out of poverty or to build their lives as much as you can in spite of the poverty? And that's a good question. Therapeutically, I think it would be very difficult to get someone out of poverty. As therapists and psychologists, we think about that sometimes kind of like the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Like this person needs food, they need housing assistance, 
how is therapy going to help that? So at times you do need to attend to their direct needs, and our program has an outreach and community piece where we do summer food programming, mentoring. It has to be a multi-system approach. They can come, fill out the necessary paperwork, and they, they are eligible for free family counseling. It's short-term brief therapy, so 12 sessions. From there, we can direct them to our outreach, community programming, mentoring, and all kinds of other programs. Obviously, I'm glad this is in Palm Beach County. What about the rest of the United States, the rest of the world? Any sense of statistics about these types of programs being elsewhere? I've never heard of any programs like this that are so accessible. I went to graduate school in Oregon, and they were having similar issues on the West Coast. I didn't encounter any kind of free services as far as not taking Medicaid just completely accessible regardless of your situation. So I think it's rare, but they do exist. They shouldn't be rare. It's too important of a need that needs to be filled. There has been in the past the notion that people who had severe mental illness would go down the social scales because they couldn't work, because of their illness, and they would drift into poverty. Mm -hmm. Is there a sense of what is causing the poverty? Are you seeing something that's more economic? And I know it's multi-layered, but how much of it is this downward drift that we see from ignored mental illness? Right. If I knew the complete answer to that question, we would be, our society would be in a lot different situation. I do agree with you. I think a lot of times what happens is people are challenged by outside things, healthcare costs. Our healthcare system in general is very reactionary. They may not seek treatment. There's stigma. There's other issues why people might not access treatment until it gets to a point where it's a serious and persistent mental illness. And then it becomes difficult to work. And others, because of discrimination, they might be systematically denied work opportunities or lose their existing job. So yes, even people that are semi-functioning can sometimes descend into poverty due to mental illness. There have been in the past programs like Head Start, other probably not national programs, but regional programs. Two questions. Do they still exist and how effective were they to help in situations like this? They do exist. A lot of early intervention programs are out there and free and reduced daycare and things like that. I'm not as familiar with the early childhood realm, but they do exist. And I think it's important. So you do approximately, I think you said 12 weeks of family counseling. Mm-hmm. Do you do other things, or are there other groups to do things, putting books in the home, asking the churches or other groups to teach parenting skills, provide social events, safe playgrounds, those types of things? Is that beyond your scope, and does it happen? That's beyond our scope at Youth Services Department. I think we're expanding and um, considering a lot of different options as far as what the community needs. We were Youth Affairs previously, still run by the county, but we weren't our own department. We were actually under the Public Safety Division. So now that we're kind of expanding, I think they're considering a lot of different things to better the community. I know Children's Services Council of Palm Beach County has just opened some different kind of local libraries in the community and, and are doing different things like that. I think every community needs needs more of this, some early enrichment activities. They've done studies on numbers of words that children are exposed to before the age of three, and it's very different for professionals versus people who receive public assistance. So a family receiving welfare benefits, the child might be exposed to 13 million words. A professional family, as far as occupations, that child's exposed to 45 million words. That's such a huge difference. I, I, I'm asking and saying and reacting at the same time in one sentence. 13 million compared to 45 million. 
Yes, this was a study done in 2003 by Hart and Risley, and it's it's actually the title is even very striking, called the early catastrophe. And so, what they're finding is parent interactions and positive affirmations and, and interacting with, positively with your child is a lot more common and occurs a lot more frequently with more affluent families. I read also that approximately 40% of the kids who live in poverty in Florida also live in single-parent families. Mm -hmm. How much of a challenge is that to you folks? Just a coincidental statistic, or is it a significant statistic in helping kids get out of that lifestyle? It is very significant. Um, if you look at any of the statistics, women, immigrants, elderly and racial and ethnic, ethnic minorities are, are more strongly impacted by poverty than other groups. So when working with families, we do try to directly address that and talk about parenting and interactions with their child and, and what it means to be a single parent. And there's just less time. So their stresses may be different than a two-parent household. Do you work with all age groups, elementary school kids, high school kids? Yes, we work in our organization at Youth Services 0 to 22. So we offer parenting, family counseling. We are in some targeted schools. And then we also do adult individual therapy for, for young people 18 to 22 that are kind of transitioning into adulthood. It's a rough process going through adolescence for anybody. Mm -hmm. Is it particularly more difficult for people in poverty? Because they can still have a firm family. They can still have a connection to a church or other people. Do we see pregnancy and teenage use of alcohol or drugs? Do you have any sense of that? It is harder. It's more difficult. And, and frankly, the odds are against them in that way. To take a different perspective, a lot of the resilience studies they do about why do some kids make it and other kids don't from the same environment and from the same circumstances, a lot of that does have to do with the things that you just mentioned, church groups, positive relationships with an adult. So a positive relationship with one adult can dramatically increase your odds of success. There, unfortunately, is a stigma against mental illness, regardless of the economic group. Mm -hmm. Is it more so? or No, let me phrase it this way. Is it different? in those who suffer from poverty? You know, I'm not actually sure if it's different. Navigating the system can be more difficult and more complex rather than somebody to just go out into private practice and, you know, write a check or look somebody up on the internet. I think it can be daunting. And, and that's a skill in and of itself sometimes is to just figure out how you're going to utilize services. But utilization of mental health services is lower for people in poverty, yes. That's an interesting point because I was thinking about it in terms of stigma, and I think you very correctly pointed out that it may not be as much stigma as it is frustration. Mm -hmm. At times it can be, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Let's go back to the notion of not being able to get enough food. What is being done and how that influences or impacts a child's growth? There are several programs out there federal programs. So we have like free and reduced lunch programs at schools. Over 30 million children in the United States are on free and reduced lunch. And then there's SNAP, WIC, and all kinds of supplemental programs that, that we have in this country. Yet still, the statistics are what they are. So it can lead to all kinds of things like low birth weight, 
Nutrition is directly linked to cognitive and socio-emotional development. We are seeing failure to thrive in 5 to 10% of children under 3. Iron deficiencies can reduce motor skills. We know that if a child is malnourished in early childhood, it kind of reduces their motivation to explore and to investigate, which can also translate into less interaction with their caregivers because we know more active babies kids who are moving around are getting more attention and more interaction with their caregiver. I would think that most healthcare providers do relatively little to address this problem. If they see it, they pass it off to other agencies. They don't treat it because of economic limitations. You used an interesting term a little while ago that sometimes the trends in healthcare are reactionary. You've been in the field, at the grassroots of this field for almost a decade. Mm-hmm. Where, do, where is it going? What, what can we expect to see? I think we're improving. I think we're thinking of of poverty and of kind of our society in general in different ways now. Um, I'm seeing a lot of changes, even from when I went to grad school or when I got my master's. In fact, I've spoken on this topic in several different forums, and I think that in and of itself speaks to, I don't think we would have been talking about this 10 years ago. There's a lot of multidisciplinary teams I'm seeing now where different disciplines are getting together to discuss cases and not just think about it in our box of healthcare or nutrition or mental health. I think that can be really helpful for families. But yes, it's something that really needs to be discussed and needs to be looked at. I think concerns with obesity has really sparked a lot of interest in the link between poverty and obesity in children, which has also been another area of interest. So I think things are improving. I think we're, we're thinking about it on a lot of different fronts. I know the education system has been involved with trying to directly impact families and meet their needs during the summer with regard to nutrition. One of the statistics that you just you mentioned a few moments ago is that under the age of three, there is a disproportionate, an uncomfortably high level of malnutrition. If 25% of the kids in Florida are in the poverty range, this means, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, tens of thousands of kids who are not going to have the opportunity to develop physiologically in a healthy way, and then all the subsequent medical or psychological problems attached to that that end up part of the social burden. It is, and we have a lot of people talking about kids graduating from college and what are we going to do with the workforce, and that is a concern, but we know that kids don't engage in the classroom and they're unmotivated if they are deeply suffering from mental health systems, malnutrition, and, and some of these other things that we're talking about here. So sometimes it's, it's important to kind of get ahead of the game and think about early intervention and what we can do. Many, many years ago, when I was working as a social worker, we were part of an organization that was presented with the following problem, and I think it applies. The hypothetical was that if they gave a billion dollars to a group to open up a drug rehabilitation center, and they gave a million dollars a year to talk to a group, to fund a group that would talk about intervention and prevention, who would have the hardest statistics at the end of the year? Obviously, the intervention people, because you can count how many people went through the doors. But the people who did the preventative work would be hard to count. It sounds like that's what's going on here. We need to do the interventions early on, but it may be years and years and years before we can count the statistics secondary to our efforts. It seems like it's the same paradigm. Mm -hmm. Right. And, And there's, it depends on kind of your discipline and your point of view. I find a lot of people 
really things I've read, they want to focus on, you know, maternal parenting and prenatal care and, and those kind of things, which I also agree with. It's not really my focus, but I think that's also very important. But it's true. A lot of these things you can't measure readily. It's just something that it, it better society kind of in the whole, but it's very difficult to kind of see that in operationalized terms. One of the things we do at Youth Services, we also do a prevention program with the judicial system. So kids that have been arrested or cited for some kind of first offense, we come and we do some family counseling with them to see if that's kind of the root of the issue, if, they're, if the system that they're working in is contributing to a lot of their behaviors. And even things like that, difficult to measure. Yes, recidivism into the system, but as far as where they end up in the longitudinal studies, we just haven't done that yet. You folks are certainly bringing an important topic to the table, and I think one that is under-recognized and not particularly comfortable for the larger society to handle, but a necessary endeavor on your part. Amanda Terrell is a psychologist in Southeast Florida in Palm Beach County, and she was good enough, and we thank you very much for taking us on this very brief tour of a very large and very complex topic. Uh, please do not stop your work. It's critically important. Thank you for joining us.